Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times. That uh, with episode 527 of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, getting over is back once again and we, yes, folks, have a loaded show for you once again. Not only will we be breaking down everything that happened over the last week in the world of AEW, but this episode serves as your 2023 NXT Deadline Ultimate Preview. We will talk about everything that happened on NXT this week, and we will break down the entire Deadline card with predictions, picks, and a pre-show expectation grade. All of that coming up momentarily here today on the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. With that said, Let's kick this off as we always do with a reminder that this show is all about Defy. So please remember to head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Leave those five-star ratings on Apple. Take a little extra time. Leave a five-star written review. If you do, we will read it live right here on the show. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode drops, news, analysis, highlights, all of that good stuff. It is also where you can tweet and DM us questions and comments that we will read live on the air. And this coming Saturday, it is where you can vote in our pre-show expectation poll and post-show poll for NXT deadline. Again, Twitter at Getting Overcast. Please also remember, I happen to love the number five. And I hope you do as well, because for $5 a month or 50 for the entire year, you can become an official Getting Overhead. Just visit buymeacoffee.com slash getting over, sign up. We will give you bonus audio, the fastest five minutes in professional wrestling, instant recap shows, along with exclusive news posts every single Friday. Again, buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. Now, as mentioned, we have a ton to get to on to today's show. Recently, we've been kicking things off with NXT and then moving to AEW, but because this is an ultimate preview edition of the podcast. We always save that for the end. So we're going to start with AEW today. We're going to move over to NXT. There are timestamps in the episode descriptions. So if you only want to listen to our takes on one or the other, or if you happen to be tuning in, let's say late Friday or Saturday ahead of NXT deadline, and you just want a preview for that show, all you need to do is find the timestamp, jump over to it. But as always, I hope you listen to the entire show. With that said, Let's kick it off with AEW, and I'm going to start where AEW finished the entire week, which is the main event of Dynamite, the TNT Championship, Christian Cage against Adam Copeland. And briefly before I continue, let me also remind everyone, we're going to talk Dynamite, Collision, Rampage all together in this one segment. So again, Christian Cage, Adam Copeland, TNT Championship on Dynamite, the main event of the show. What was disappointing to me, just off the top, the first promotion that we got for this was with 40 minutes left in Dynamite. You would have thought that they would be heavily leaning into this the entire show. The first time they fought one-on-one, I think in like 20 years, maybe the second time ever, that they've actually fought one-on-one on television or a pay-per-view. It just felt like this needed to be promoted a lot heavier throughout the show, and they didn't exactly do that. But when they gave us the video package with 40 minutes remaining, it was solid. It missed a little bit of an oomph, just because the vast majority of their wrestling lives together obviously happened in WWE and they didn't have that footage, but they still put together a pretty compelling package. Uh, Copeland wore some Calgary Hitman-inspired gear. 
Christian's early low blow attempt got blocked with a hand stomp. He later did a Russian leg sweep off the ropes and a frog splash. Copeland came back with an impaler DDT and a Liger bomb out of the corner. Christian leapfrogged a spear, countering into kill switch for a great false finish. Then Copeland dodged a spear, but ran into the referee. So Cage low blowed the ref and grabbed the title. He went for a belt shot, but Copeland dodged it. And they did a simultaneous spear, basically knocking each other's shoulders and falling on the canvas in pain. At that moment, Nick Wayne's mom comes down, grabs the title, struggles to decide who she wants to use it on. She ultimately drilled Copeland with it, presumably because he, you know, tried to kill her son with a concerto two weeks ago. Even though it was a real weak-ass belt shot, Christian came back with kill switch, put the title under Copeland's head, and then stomped on his neck with the referee coming to it just the right time for the one, two, three. So Wayne's mom attacking Copeland made perfect sense, as I just explained. And it was a smart way to get out of the match and build a rematch, presumably for World's End at the end of December. That said, it came across like a wet fart. And there's a few reasons for that. First, her belt shot was shit. Second, no one cares about her, nor was anyone who was paying attention actually surprised by this. The latter of that is okay. It doesn't have to always be surprising. But third, it's ridiculous that Nick Wayne is the centerpiece of an Edge and Christian feud in 2023. Fourth, Christian did not take advantage of this belt shot in any type of like exciting way. He walked around, he posed. At one point, he stood over Copeland holding the title before he continued to attack him. He wasted a bunch of time. And then finally, he went for the finish. And they basically did a stomp to the neck on the title, but the neck is elevated, right? So the title being under his head, I guess maybe it reduced the bounce, so it made it a little bit more impactful, but it didn't actually do anything like a concerto in kayfabe would. Point being, the end of this freaking dragged. But here is what bothered me most about it, by a mile. Copeland has been in AEW for like two months, and they're already doing a neck injury angle. That is such a massive yawn and an eye roll. I mean, you knew they would do it eventually, but literally the first storyline that they're doing, the match was real good. It probably would have been four stars eventually if they had finished it well. But I'm nowhere near that after the finish. In retrospect, this should have been a street fight with everything that happened in the finish being legal. It wouldn't have necessarily helped it be much better, but the organization of it would have made more sense and the referee could have helped sell the shock of the moment. Oh my God, why is Nick Wayne's mom here? I can't believe she did that. You know, hands on the head, like the selling of the entire thing. Instead, you had fans booing and really more than booing. They were disappointed that they didn't get to see a full finish in this match. It was promoted so heavily because they were in Canada. So the expectation should have been, well, we're at least gonna get a really good full match, but they didn't because obviously they wanted to book it out towards World's End. And I don't blame them for that because this was a pay-per-view caliber match. So giving it away on TV didn't make much sense. And the concept they came up with did make sense based on the concerto that we discussed previously. But just because it makes sense doesn't mean it's good. And that's the differentiator here. Hopefully I'm being clear that I did enjoy 90% of this, but it fell apart for me at the end. This was one of two occasions on Dynamite. You're gonna hear about the other one in a moment where AEW really seemed to have something only for the end to kind of fall apart. 
The goal of a finish like this should be to have the viewer frothing at the mouth for a rematch. I'm like moderately interested in them fighting again. That's a problem. On Collision, Samoa Joe backstage was interrupted by Roderick Strong and the Kingdom, reiterating that MJF is the devil. And since Adam Cole likes Joe, he wanted to advise him that Joe and MJF are just going to be beaten up by the devil and his goons, which I guess is what they're called now. Joe just laughed at him and left. Then they rolled down the ramp and Kingdom beat the Iron Savages in under three minutes. I don't understand why the Kingdom uses the Young Bucks finisher. I don't understand why they're having all these individual matches. They're all squashes. They don't look, I mean, they're not bad wrestlers, but they don't look good in the matches. It's immensely repetitive and worthless. On Dynamite, the trio came out on stage and I will admit that I laughed because Matt Taven was wearing a giraffe print shirt. I just thought that was immensely funny. Strong again warned Joe that he would get screwed by MJF. Then he rose from the wheelchair saying it held him back for far too long. He trashed it off the stage and then spiked the microphone. Like, what the fuck was this? I'm pretty sure Strong forgot half of what he was supposed to say in the promo. The crowd in French literally chanted, we don't fucking care. I mean, that's the way this segment came across. Now, I'm gonna, I crapped on those a little bit. Let me go real positive here because on Dynamite backstage, Hangman Page came back and he reiterated his entire storyline with Swerve Strickland. He admitted that he was beaten, but claimed that he took something from Swerve that he'll never get back. Hangman promised they're not done. He also promised to ensure that Swerve never achieves his goals in life. MJF then popped out of his locker room. He gave Page a bunch of shit, but Hangman walked away only for MJF to continue shitting on him on the mic just basically for being boring and, and dull. So Hangman comes back and they start throwing barbs at one another until MJF said he believes Paige is the devil. Hangman shot back that MJF is a manipulator, so it was probably him who's the devil. Joe eventually got between them and told MJF to get your head on straight. This was great. Easily the best non-match segment on AEW television this entire week. It's curious a little bit because Hangman really should be nowhere near the title picture after losing to Swerve. And MJF certainly doesn't need another challenger right now, given his next month plus is already mapped out. But the continuity aspect of them still hating each other, that was appreciated. And Hangman did his best to try to overcome the Swerve loss. Though I would say that was actually the least successful part of the segment. Paige is like, yeah, you beat the shit out of me. You invaded my home and threatened my kid, but you beat me in the ring. So... Yeah, I'll just be on your ass still. You should be a lot angrier than that. But overall, it did hit. Like I said, this was the best part of Dynamite and really the best part of AEW TV this week. And then we got what followed it. Joe hits the ring after this for the tag team match that was scheduled with MJF when suddenly the lights went out and the four devil goons surrounded the ring when they came back on. Then the lights went out again and all of them were gone. The devil popped up on the big screen only to reveal MJF had been completely laid out backstage with it looking like a beer bottle was broken over his head. There was no follow-up after commercial, no shot of medical tending to MJF, no backstage chaos, nothing. This despite MJF getting attacked under real bright lights, presumably in clear view of people, and presumably in an area where there should be security cameras given, you know, it's a huge arena. And this is precisely the problem with AEW Creative. This was half an in-show storyline. How do you not follow up on this, both immediately in the next segment after commercial, 
and then again before the broadcast is out. They stayed with MJF and the storyline the entire time at the last pay-per-view. They were with him when he got loaded into the ambulance. They had updates while he was at the hospital. And then he comes back from the hospital and competes in the match. Here, we can't see him get loaded into the ambulance. No one showing sympathy for him. No trainers addressing him. Tony Khan has nothing to say about it. No official postponement of the match. I mean, just nothing happened. Samoa Joe running backstage, crazed, looking for who attacked him. Nothing. There was no follow-up. This is your world champion. This is your guy, the guy in the entire company. He got attacked and nothing else happened the rest of the show. That criticism aside, the beer bottle being used is obviously meant to point to Hangman, given his proclivity for the Suds. But of course, the devil and the goons, they were involved given what surrounded the circumstances. The fact that Joe got surrounded in the ring, the lights went out, the devil was on screen, and they showed it. It feels more and more to me like this is just going to be an expanded, undisputed era. Like Adam Cole, Roderick Strong, Kyle O'Reilly, The Kingdom, and Wardlow. Something like that. I'm sure that will get a pop if it's Cole under the mask. But if he really is injured and can't wrestle anytime soon, then how long are they going to drag this out? That's if it's him. Look, it could be other people, right? It could be Paige. It could be Samoa Joe. We've talked about Jungle Boy. Britt Baker, we've discussed. I mean, it could be a lot of people. It could be Dolph Ziggler. They could wait until, you know, he his 90 days expires from WWE and he comes in and he's under the mask. There's a lot of things they can do. Are any of those really interesting? It's just going to matter how they deliver because, again, major holes in this storyline. Not just, not holes in the storyline. That's unfair. Poor booking of the storyline, an inability or an unwillingness to go back to it and and give that to your audience. That's what they want. That's why they're watching your program. Not to just go to another eight-minute wrestling match. They want the storyline. They don't always deliver the storyline. By the way, as an aside, speaking of storylines, Samoa Joe is really bad at protecting people. He was supposed to be William Regal's enforcer in NXT, if you remember, but everyone still went wild. He couldn't get control of them. Now in AEW, he's supposed to be protecting MJF, who keeps getting the shit kicked out of him. Good wrestler, bad security guard. Let's move to the Continental Classic and go through all of those matches. On Collision, Brian Danielson fought Eddie Kingston in the Blue League. Brian had a huge eye patch with a strap, and he wore all black gear with chains, blood splatters, and a new BD logo on them. He looked totally different. They got into an extended head-focused series of attacks with Danielson drilling Kingston repeatedly, only to eat a spinning backfist for a false finish. Eddie chopped the shit out of Brian, who chopped him down with kicks. There was an entire referee count with Danielson's arm under one of Kingston's shoulders. That was terrible. Brian then stomped his head in. They grilled each other, and Danielson hit the psycho knee for the win in about 17 minutes. Brian then took a sign from the crowd that said, Eddie is a bum, and celebrated with it, which was surprising to me because I was actually expecting like a show of respect between them after the bell, but we didn't get that. It was an excellent match across the board, 4.25 stars and an A. I really just loved everything they did here. Tough for Eddie to have zero points at this juncture, but hopefully he gets some wins down the stretch. As for Brian, he wrestled well despite the patch, and I do legitimately wonder if it's pure kayfabe, it's like the see-through material. Here's why I say that. With a broken orbital bone, I don't believe the concern is light exposure. So shouldn't he have been wearing an entire face mask, like Rip Hamilton, like to ensure that it heals? I don't know what the eye patch accomplished for him. I guess I'd have to ask him specifically. Obviously, I'm not a doctor, but that's what was confusing to me about it. 
On collision, Claudio Castagnoli fought Brody King in a blue league match. Claudio swung Brody and locked in the sharpshooter. King hit a massive cannonball for a one count. Claudio then hit a Death Valley driver for a one count. Brody caught him off a springboard with a cast forearm and a pile driver, falling with a massive lariat for the win. Definite banger here. Hard hitting, far better than the King-Kingston match, which I think was last week. 3.75 stars B+. Uh, on collision, we also got Andrade El Idolo against Daniel Garcia in a blue match. Andrade escaped the sleeper by climbing onto the ropes and hitting a superplex plus three amigos. Garcia countered a figure eight attempt into the Dragon Slayer, but he leaned back all the way like usual. And when he did that, Andrade grabbed his head, moved him into a hammerlock DDT. Commentary called these a sharpshooter and a flatliner, neither of which they were, completely screwing up the finish. This has been an ongoing deal with Garcia where he leans back too much, gets his head caught, and then loses. A prior opponent, it might have been Claudio, maybe Samoa Joe, I don't remember who it was, banged his head into the canvas from that position multiple times, and that led to him losing. Garcia, of course, continues this losing streak, and I continue to hold out hope that there's a purpose for it. This was a B match, nothing special despite the talent level, but I am intrigued if they're going to tell us more regarding Garcia and the Dragon Slayer submission that he's doing and him leaning back and that costing him multiple matches because it seems to be purposeful. Later backstage, hot and flexible prevented Miro from invading Andrade's room. She said Miro picked his god and she needed to prove herself by winning this tournament. She said she couldn't stop him from going in the room. She just did that seconds earlier. She literally stopped him. But she asked if he has any love for her to not touch Andrade and let her find her own way. Miro said his god is gone. Otherwise, he'd have been in the tournament but he touched her hair and promised not to hurt her client. I'm sorry, I don't get this at all. They're married. They presumably live together. There's been no indication that they're broken up, just that they disagreed on like career path. I cannot believe this is the storyline they're doing. What is the payoff going to be? Hot and flexible ditches Andrade and starts managing Miro on TV? And that was actually a great point by Miro also. Why the hell was he not in this tournament in the first place? immensely frustrating. On Dynamite, John Moxley fought Roosh in a gold match. Mox cut a promo on Collision about being banged up and in constant pain, so his plan was to wrestle and fight his way out of it while proving this is what AEW is all about. There are so many promos from wrestlers in AEW about AEW being great or special or whatever the case might be. It's wild and it's repetitive, but obviously Mox was great in his promo as usual. In the match, Mox should have won via countout, but it continued. He countered two bull's horns attempt with a forearm and then a lariat. Then he countered with Death Rider for the false finish, only to win via rear naked choke. Roosh immediately jumped up, basically no-selling the effectiveness, which was immensely dumb. AEW really goes above and beyond to overprotect its wrestlers in losses, which just ruins the realism. If I'm getting choked out enough to either tap out or pass out, I'm not hopping to my feet immediately either way. The match was solid across the board, hard hitting, didn't fully deliver for me. On Dynamite, we had Swerve against Mark Briscoe in a gold match. I wonder who's going to win this one. It was do or die for Briscoe, who had zero points coming in. Swerve basically hit a superplex off the barricade outside and later went on his normal run. Briscoe then basically just threw himself at Swerve over the ropes, but Swerve rolled through a Jay Driller into house call. Briscoe blocked a 450 for a 2.99 false finish counter cover, but Swerve blocked Froggy Bow coming back with a Death Valley driver on the apron and Swerve Stomp for the win. Excellent match. Briscoe isn't getting wins, but he is showing out. 
as a singles performer. Credit to him. Four stars A- minus for this with Swerve and Mox both holding nine points. Clearly, the idea is for them to meet in the finals of the gold group, and they advance that with a backstage confrontation a little bit later in the show. That's going to be a huge TV match when it happens next week. Probably the match of the entire tournament, if we're being honest. Also on Dynamite, Jay White fought Jay Lethal in a gold match. There was a video package before this showing them wrestling when they were younger. Lethal took a rough bump on a sleeper suplex. They also did a rough double finisher counter. Then White took out Lethal's knee while trying Lethal Injection. There was another sling blade counter with White catching Lethal on the canvas for the one, two, three. Solid overall, the wrong finish though. You have White still reeling. He still needs to get built up again. And this was the perfect situation for him not just to win clean, but win decisively with a finisher, and they didn't do it. Overall, I am very much enjoying the Continental Classic. Because no storylines are required, the wrestling talent is able to shine without kind of being weighed down by all of AEW's booking problems. That's a huge positive. I still have issues with the idea of the modern American Triple Crown. I think that's absolutely ridiculous. The fact that AEW is adding another title and also giving up the ROH main title to do it, but they're still going to have an ROH TV title. It's, it's just a mess. But in terms of the wrestling and the presentation of it, the two leagues, the graphics, all that, I'm very much enjoying what they're doing. No question about it. On Rampage, Sting and Ric Flair hit the ring with Tony Schiavone announcing tickets for Revolution are on sale in two weeks. They name dropped a bunch of people and talked about staying friends. There was a clear cut here, so Flair must have said something that was stupid or controversial, completely repetitive of what they've already done. There was no storyline relevance. This was a total waste of time. And also, you're putting Sting and Flair on your third show, Rampage, to promote tickets being sold? The fewest people that you have watching any of your products? For what reason are you doing that? This was just immensely dumb. Also on Rampage, Don Callis' family beat three jobbers in one minute. It was supposed to look impressive, but it was nothing. It was just a foray for Callis into cutting a promo on Kenny Omega and Chris Jericho. He seemed to get massive heat again, saying there was nowhere for those guys to go but to hide. And then since Kanosuke Takeshka and Kyle Fletcher were here with Powerhouse Hobbs, that only furthered my confusion about Hobbs' promo last week where he talked about wanting to take them out himself. You got two other guys with you, so why would you not do a tag team match? That doesn't make sense. On Collision... Ethan Page got promo time saying he's been racking up wins in ROH and is in the best shape of his life coming back from his loss to MJF. Since AEW is going back to Canada, he wanted to fight Omega to determine the best Canadian wrestler. It's actually amazing how AEW cannot figure out a way to use this guy. It's going to be his first singles match in AEW in five months. No one watches Ring of Honor and he hasn't beaten anyone of value there. I checked his cage match to see, oh, maybe he's like racking up legit wins over there. He's not. He's actually lost two of his last three matches. So while there was decent, decent like reasoning for having the Omega match, I mean, it's thin as hell. And again, how can they not figure out how to use Ethan Page, who was getting over on the mic when he was given promo time? On Collision, House of Black fought Christopher Daniels and Matt Slidell. Malachi Black missed Black Mass only for one heel and one face to hit stereo meteoras. CD eventually sold the knee, eating a stomp from Buddy Matthews and Black Mass which is apparently now called The End. Makes sense because his old name was Tommy End, but they got the win. Worthless match in terms of storyline, but it was entertaining. Black and Matthews are and always have been a great pairing. FTR entered afterward with Black, assuming that they're joining the house. Why they would assume that, I have no idea. Before they could even answer, Buddy delivered a pump knee to Dax Harwood, and then he stomped Cash Wheeler. Then Matthews made Dax watch as Black hit the end on Cash, with Malachi pointing out no one came to get their backs, and then he hit the end on Harwood. 
kind of convoluted as a premise, but this is going to be a great mini non-title feud from a match standpoint. So I'm definitely here to see House of Black and FTR, no question. Far more interesting than whatever is happening with the current champions, which is waiting for Jericho and Omega to challenge them while they're involved in another feud. Just, again, very convoluted. On Rampage, Hikaru Shida, Chris Statlander, and Sky Blue fought the Outcasts and Anna Jay. Soraya kind of insulted Ruby Soho for not doing well recently while talking to Anna. Angelo Parker came in wanting to help or something, but they just dipped out. Stat and Blue are at odds, but Sheeta got them on the same page. Anna went on a run. Stat forced some friendly fire, and Sky hit Code Blue for the win. I maintain she's using the wrong finisher. Skyfall is way better than Code Blue. The idea was that Stat and Sky came together finally while the heels imploded. I don't understand what the end goal of the Stat Sky story is. I do understand what the end goal is of the Outcast, which is for them to split up and Angelo Parker may be rifting between Soraya and Ruby. How interesting that is, that's up to you to decide. Um, but I don't get the Stat and Sky thing. Like, where is that going? Unless they're gonna team and they're gonna create a women's tag team title, that doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense. On Collision, Tony Storm did her gimmick promo saying the only time people pay attention to Sky is when she's walking away, you know, because of her ass. I mean, you know, she's not totally wrong there. Gonna look good, but she's got me saying, hey now! She also pointed out how the spooky makeup change only accomplishes so much. Also true. Sky later answered saying Tony is having a midlife crisis and she'd love to shove her shoe up her ass. I would say more than decent promos from both of them, but it's still a thrown together match just for a random storm title defense. On Dynamite, Mariah May backstage was excited for her AEW in-ring debut that's apparently been planned with Tony Khan, but she wanted all the attention on the night onto Tony Storm because she had a title match. It was fine. It was kind of a waste of time two weeks in a row to have her cut these really short promos that neither developed her character nor delivered a match announcement, but hopefully we get to see her in the ring soon. On Dynamite, the women's championship was on the line. Storm against Blue. Tony was introduced for this match by someone named Ben Mankowitz, who I guess is a TCM host. I figured he'd be in attendance to do it because they promoted it, but it was pre-taped from his studio. That ended up making a lot of sense because they were doing like a full classic movie presentation intro aesthetic type of deal. He also said her tagline at the end without the tits out part, obviously. There were some fun Easter eggs in the way he introduced her, including talking about the lot in which this would be taped on. And I think he said that Tony Storm was playing the role of AEW Women's Champion, which is also pretty fun. Storm wound up on Lutha's shoulders and he ran for her and she like snapped Sky off the ring apron. And then she did a hip attack into the corner of the barricade. Tony countered Skyfall into a German suplex. Blue dodged a hip attack and then hit her own, plus a running boot, plus code blue for a false finish. She sold no frustration after not getting the fall. Storm came back with a superplex and a hip attack. Sky then countered Storm Zero, but Tony countered back into a pinning combination and got the win. It was a nice match. Sky held her own. It was the best Tony has looked in the ring through this entire timeless run. The only problem was the lack of emotion in the match, particularly from Blue, who should have been so frustrated hitting her finisher and only getting a two count. What am I gonna do now? How do I beat her? Like there was none of that. She just continued as if it was normal cost of business course of business that people just kick out of Code Blue all the time. Rio randomly entered after the bell, waving at Storm and pointing to the title with Tony running away. So clearly Rio's next for a title match, even though she hasn't fought on AEW TV since April and she lost a title match one match before her last match in AEW, which was against Jamie Hayter. 
I don't understand why AEW cannot create a full storyline for the top woman in the company right now. Timeless Tony Storm is getting over. Whether you or I like it or not, the majority of fans seem to love it. How have they not found someone or decided on a storyline that they can start building so she has a huge title match at World's End? Is the match going to be Rio? They can't make that the match at World's End. I like Rio, by the way. Fans love her. But that's not a pay-per-view match with zero build just because she happened to return. Like, why can't Tony Storm not have a storyline? It's so immensely freaking frustrating. I guess after four years of watching this company, though, it's, it's tough to expect more than that. On Collision, Shane Taylor interrupted Keith Lee before he was about to do an interview, saying they should finally have their match at Final Battle, which is an ROH show. All of that time spent on this during AEW TV, pretty extended period, and I don't even get to see the match because I sure as shit am not buying full, I almost called it, sorry, full gear, Final Battle for this match. It's a joke, waste of time. On Rampage, El Io del Vikingo, Commander, and Penta El Zero Miedo fought Brian Cage and the Work Horsemen. Prince Nana backstage was excited about expanding Mogul Embassy, saying he hired them to give them a chance to shine in this match. I don't know why he would think the Work Horsemen would be a valuable part of their enterprise, but I digress. Vikingo hit a kind of wild inverted tornado DDT. There wasn't no tagging. There was negative tagging in this match. Cage eventually got pissed with his partners and walked out. So the faces hit Fear Factor, a tightrope 450, and the 630 sent on to win because it took three finishers to beat Anthony Henry. Some fun spots, nothing else here. On Collision, Vikingo fought Kip Sabian. No story behind this match, just like the last one. Vikingo won with the 630 sent on. It is such a tough move to execute. So it's not odd that he hits it inconsistently. But this one, his full body weight landed on Sabian's chest and it looked gnarly. The guy is an immense talent, but there's nothing to his wrestling but moves for the most part. Like, I need this guy to sell more. I need need him to emote more. I need him to be in storylines that matter. They're just using him for flash and it feels like his potential is so much higher than that. So I just remain kind of disappointed the way they brought this guy into the company and pretty much done nothing with him. They're using him, he's on TV, but that's literally all they're doing. On Rampage, Orange Cassidy, Tremperetta, Hook and Danhausen fought 2.0 and Dark Order. Danhausen put the Jake Hager purple hat on, he was ringside. Hook took Angela Parker and Red Rum. Danhausen rolled up Matt Menard and got the win. This was a real opening match. This was something that actually happened on television. On Collision, Kiara Hogan fought Abaddon. So I saw this booking and I had three thoughts. One. Of course, no reason was given for the match. But two, holy shit, Abaddon is on TV in a month other than October. And three, this is a real good chance for Kiara Hogan to pick up a win. Well, Abaddon won in four minutes. The lights went out and they came back on with Julia Hart standing in the corner. Then they went off again and she was gone. So they did this just to give Julia Hart a creepy opponent. Oh, commentary also botched a Johnny Carson quote during this. And they told us that they were having standby matches that would be on the show. I, I don't even know why you would say that. It, this was a big yikes for me. I mean, clearly I had some issues with things that AEW did this week, but this did not work for me whatsoever. Block at zero. Speaking of, on Collision, after a Wardlow video, some guy appeared on screen taking exception to Wardlow, putting hands on his friends. It was Willie Mack. Now you would not have known this had commentary not briefly and barely said his name under like a transitional sound. There was no nameplate, nothing to indicate who was speaking. 
just nothing. On top of that, if you're going to do a, you hurt my friend, so I'm going to hurt you type of angle, the fans need to either care about one or both of the people involved or know that you're at least friends. Neither of these guys are AEW talent. No one gives a fuck about either of them. So why are we getting this on collision? Zero point zero. Zero point zero, Mr. Blutarski. So yeah, I mean, look, the good is good in AEW right now. Like the Continental Classic, these matches, they're freaking hitting and they're they're making for real good television that is capturing me as a viewer. And then you get segments like the Hangman Page and MJF thing. And you're like, man, they got some stuff going on here. Like, I'm really curious to see how this plays out. But there were just so many occasions this week where AEW dropped the ball from a storyline standpoint. And there was so much filler on Rampage and Collision. Those shows are becoming so tough to watch. Do you remember that first month where Collision was like, I don't want to say must watch TV, but it felt so different and it looked different and the matches were high quality and there were different people on the show. It just feels like a B-level dynamite and Rampage feels like it's, I don't even know, like main event or something at this point, like AEW Dark at this point. I don't understand what they're doing. I can't imagine it's helping them in their TV rights negotiations. So again, there were positives from AEW this week, but just not a great week overall, at least from this observer. Now, with that said, folks, let's go ahead, move over to NXT, where we're first gonna talk about a little bit of news in the NXT universe. Then we're gonna discuss some things that happened on the TV show that don't directly relate to Deadline. And finally, we will have your NXT Deadline Ultimate Preview. There was a big news item that came out that had nothing to do with the NXT show itself. It's that Mackenzie Mitchell, the backstage interviewer, and by the way, the wife, I believe, I think it used to be fiance, I believe they're now married, of lead commentator Vic Joseph was fired by WWE. And I just gotta say, like, I don't get this at all. She wasn't good. She was great at her job. She was the perfect backstage interviewer for NXT because she played into the characters and she got along with the faces and she hated the heels. Like it was just immensely high quality work. She was so talented and so successful down there. I kept wondering when the hell are they gonna take Mackenzie and Vic and move them up to the main roster? Because there is no reason whatsoever for Kevin Patrick to be doing play-by-play on SmackDown. You could easily have Vic Joseph in that main chair and you have Mackenzie Mitchell as the backstage interviewer, along with the other talent that they have on the main roster, which is doing a fine job in the backstage interview roles. But you're set. Everything's going great. And then you bring in, you, you, you coach up a new play-by-play person for NXT, just like you always do. And you move on from there. Instead, they fired Mackenzie and her replacement. You know, I'm not going to name her here, but she's fine. Like, she, there's nothing wrong with the job that she does. But Mackenzie had a personality and a significant level of talent. And again, her husband is your lead commentator for the program. I don't get this at all. She seemed upset, obviously, on Twitter, as anyone would be when they lose their job. Um, I was personally upset seeing it happen. She seems like a really nice person. She seems like she was doing a fantastic job in NXT. And more than anything, I just don't understand it. Like, Shawn Michaels was asked about it during an NXT deadline conference call that I was on Thursday before I taped this show. And he's like, hey, you know, what's the deal with this? And he's like, we love her. I was as surprised as you guys are. Doors open, would love to have her back. I think everyone feels that way. So, I mean, look, potentially there was a salary negotiation and she wanted X and they said, 
we're not going to give that to you. So we'll just get rid of you. That's possible. It's possible that she did something from an HR standpoint that was bad and they need to get rid of her. Sure. Maybe something on social media, who knows? But in terms of like just judging her based on the work product, I cannot justify them getting rid of Mackenzie Mitchell in this role. It makes absolutely zero sense. And it's almost offensive because that's how good she was. It's like, how can someone that good not be part of your company when you need someone that good in that role? So frustration here. I wanted to say that right off the top, a little venting, as you can tell, let's go ahead and get into everything else that happened in NXT. I hope Mackenzie Mitchell is back in WWE or somewhere prominent sooner than later. Uh, Alpha Academy fought Metaphor. This was a six-person mixed match involving everyone except Akira Tozawa and Jakara Jackson. Apparently, whoever booked this just doesn't like people with the letter K in their names, I guess. Uh, this started chaotic. There's actually a really fun sequence with Maxine Dupree and Lash Legend. There was a semi-botch that led to a catch slam by Otis. Lash then straight up fucking body slammed Otis. Legitimately insane moment. She didn't just do like, a regular momentum body slam. She held him in her arms for like five seconds. It was wild. Otis then caught Lash falling out of the ring. Maxine did a splash off of Gable's shoulders outside. Gable then caught Nova Roller clean, countering it into an ankle lock for the submission victory. Folks, this was not a five-star match, but it was absolutely five-star entertainment. My heavens was this freaking fun. Maxine is shockingly improving each week. Lash is 10 times better than she was during her first run. Otis was hysterical. And then we got some quality wrestling elements as well. I'm giving it, you know, three stars B minus just as a foray for me to let you know that this also gets three slabs of beef out of five just because of Lash and the Otis segment. He don't want no water. He don't want no bread. All he wants is meat. There's a lot of beef out here. On a side note, Everyone should know that Lash basically broke nearly all of Bianca Belair's records for the women at the WWE Performance Center. So the strength and ability, that has never been in doubt. She's finally putting it all together. Andre Chase addressed his students in a Chase U assembly. Everyone was visibly upset at him, Thea Hale particularly so. Chase admitted that he was the one at fault and he announced that Chase U was under academic probation. Hale demanded to know what the university owes so they can figure it out. He said they're in debt hundreds of thousands of dollars plus interest because he went through a third party. Chase promised to dig them out of the debt and restore Chase U to its full glory. They started coming up with ideas to get out of the debt, a car wash, a bake sale, all that type of stuff. Chase ignored JC Jane's question and Thea got fixated on some good looking guy in the crowd. This was much better than last week's press conference. I'm still curious about where this goes though because he's in debt to a babyface mafia don. And clearly the angle is gonna be them earning the money back to become whole again as Chase U. Maybe it becomes like a double or nothing type of deal where the deck gets wiped. I still think the idea of Duke Hudson going back to his poker gimmick just briefly makes a lot of sense and would be comedically a great part of the show. But like I said, this was way better than last week, both in concept and execution. Lyra Valkyria backstage was being interviewed about Deadline when Lola Vice walked up with her breakout tournament contract, reminding that she can cash it in whenever she wants. Electra Lopez suggested Lola could cash in for a main roster title. I don't believe that's part of the rules whatsoever. Then Tatum Paxley stepped in to get Valkyria's back. That led to a match. So Paxley against Vice. Uh, Lola twice caught Tatum in submissions that she escaped, but Vice eventually chopped her down with a back fist and some kicks and eventually hit her roundhouse kick for the win. Paxley played with her hair and kind of laughed a little bit in the corner after taking an L. Not an unexpected result because Lola is the contract holder, 
but I was just kind of hoping like the return of Tatum would result in her getting some shine. I'm glad she's been repackaged. I'm glad she's back. Vice is doing well. I'm not all in with her yet. I'd like to see a little bit more of Paxley. Nathan Frazier was in the bathroom looking depressed over the loss to Ilya Dragunov when Axiom came in with a mask, kind of poking him that he might want to wear one as well. Frazier got heated and Axiom offered to let him take out his aggression in a match that he'll lose. They agreed to a friendly fight and they promised that they would end it with a handshake. These guys actually have really great chemistry playing off one another, not just in the ring, but outside of it too. Their personalities just meld well and Axiom has some real sneaky comedic chops, especially for a dude who wears a mask. So this match was booked and the bell rang. They got about two minutes of action in and then something happened. So just bookmark this in your head and we're gonna get back to it during the NXT Deadline Ultimate Preview in a moment. The men's NXT breakout tournament, that was announced as starting next week. Participating are Riley Osborne, Keanu Carver, Tavian Heights, Dion Lennox, Luca Crucifino, Miles Bourne, Trey Bearhill, and Oba Femi. Osborne is legitimately impressive. I saw him in person when I went to NXT a few weeks ago. Oba Femi looked impressive when he got his TV match, but we haven't seen him since then. I have no idea what was up with that, but definitely glad he's back. I know Heights has done a lot of work in Level Up. I haven't really seen it. Crucifino and Bourne, we've seen a little bit. I think they've also done Level Up work. But Carver, Lennox, and Bearhill are completely new to me. No idea about them. Will be interesting to see if this can outdo the women's tournament because that one was really rough and disappointing, especially compared to the first couple that they've done previously. Gallus found Hank and Tank in their pub, tried to kick him out, but they had already bought them beers and wanted to talk business. They basically wanted to challenge them just in a match. Gallus denied. So they did a real shitty Scottish accent to mock them and that goaded them into accepting. This actually might've been the best one of these Gallus segments, but why would Gallus need to be bought beers in their own pub? Wouldn't they just automatically get them for free? I thought that was weird. Also, at one point during the show, Joe Gacy sat right behind commentary pointing at Vic Joseph saying, we love you. He said it like three times, but that was literally all that happened. Like there was no follow-up to it. There was nothing of him backstage doing it to someone else. It was just like 15 seconds of him doing that. And that was it. So with that, let's move to the NXT Deadline Ultimate Preview. Again, we're going to break down every single match with picks and predictions, and we will give you a pre-show expectation grade at the end. This is going to be one of our more interesting Ultimate Previews because a ton happened on the go-home NXT, including one match getting changed and three matches getting booked. What looked like a four-match card now has seven matches, including one on a kickoff show. That's rare. But so many segments weaved into one another and actually led to match development and booking that we're not gonna be able to do this in like diminishing order from low card to main event. We're just gonna have to do it in the order kind of it was presented to us. So let's dig right into it. Scheduled was the North American Championship, Dominic Mysterio against Wes Lee. Wes was in the ring, totally dressed down, depressed, and holding a crutch. He emotionally spoke about being ready to destroy Dom with his heart being the difference maker. He started legitimately crying and he revealed he doesn't have a great feeling in his legs, and he's in excruciating pain, and it's gonna require back surgery to get him back to normal. Wes promised he would return and cement his legacy as one of the best in NXT history. Dom immediately came out, got bonus heat by mocking his injury, obviously, and he said he has his own back pain from carrying WWE on his back for the last two years. He was excited to have the night off at deadline, uh, but Wes revealed there's actually gonna be another opponent set for the show. Rey Mysterio suddenly appeared on the Titantron announcing that Dom would defend the title 
with him in attendance in the corner of Dragon Lee. He immediately came out, Dragon did, and got up on Dom, who quickly escaped. I got to tell you, the whole time that Wes was cutting this promo, I was immensely impressed because I assumed it was all a work to get Dom to drop his guard so Wes could just get up on him ahead of deadline. Would have been a really smart babyface tactic. And then this guy starts crying legit tears. And you could tell the shit was real. Like this was shocking in that nothing leaked out about it ahead of time. And there was no indication that anything was wrong with him. He's had a terrific NXT career as a singles performer. And the arrow continues to point all the way up. You could argue that Wesley has been the heart and soul of NXT since Johnny Gargano and Tommaso Ciampa left. This is an immense blow coming at a time where it seemed like he might actually take the title back from Dom, or if not, he might advance to the main roster after losing. Something big was coming for him one way or another. Commentary later announced it would be an eight to 12 month injury, which again, it's just devastating for him. Nice guy, friend of the show here, this sucks. In terms of a pick for this match now, which is gonna be Dominic Mysterio against Dragon Lee. I would love to think my original booking when I booked the damn territory once Dominic won the title was right. And then you put it on Dragon and all is gonna be right in the world. But it seems obvious the way that this is going to go. What they did here is reveal that Ray is healthy enough to be on TV again, which means Santos Escobar should be heavily interested in this match. I would assume Escobar attacks Ray and then helps Dom beat Dragon. It just makes way too much sense. The only question is what NXT does now, because again, it seemed clear to me that they were planning a title change. And if that was going to be the case, then they need someone to hold the North American Championship. Maybe they just figure that out on TV next week. But Dom and Dragon, Dragon getting another premium live event appearance and another title match, Ray being involved, possibly Santos being involved, that is all a massive positive on the back of something significantly negative, obviously, Wesley being out for eight to 12 months. Let's go to the Women's Iron Survivor Challenge. Tiffany Stratton, Kalani Jordan, Lash Legend, Blair Davenport, and one competitor still to be determined. Roxanne Perez, Thea Hale, Fallon Henley, and Kiana James all fought in a last chance match. Perez and James brawled during a training session earlier in the day. Hale basically did JC Jane's exact entrance. Kiana used her purse on Roxy and murked her into the barricade. Later, Roxy took Kiana off the barricade, slamming her through the announce table. Back inside, Henley countered Hale and knocked her out with the Shining Wizard to survive and advance into the match. This was a fantastic opener. It really showed that all these women have talent. Perez was the clear MVP. I loved the consistent aggression that she showed during this match. That's a new take on her character in the ring. I definitely wanted Roxy in this match, the women's iron survivor, but the booking made perfect sense that her rivalry with Kiana is so intense that it cost both of them their chance. If someone else from this match had to join the field, Fallon was the right person. It's a big opportunity for her, especially because she's gonna be the most prominent babyface in the match by a mile. It's gonna be immensely interesting to see how they book it because she, Davenport, and Stratton are heads and shoulders above Jordan and Legend. It's gonna be a sink or swim situation for both of them. There was a summit later with all the women in the match. Stratton talked her talk. Jordan pointed out that she might be young, but none of them were in this match last year, so it's equally new to all of them, heavily scripted. Legend talked about bullying them all, and Henley kind of reignited her beef with Stratton. Easily, easily, Fallon was the best promo of the group. Then she kind of punched uh, Tiffany in in her breast, and it was like a melee, uh, and so they all got separated. Not the best segment, not the worst. Don't really think it was necessary. 
One fun note here, there was a QR code on the podium. If you were to scan it, it took you to a WWE website with a woman voiceover saying, quote, see you at deadline. Since it's meant to be an Easter egg, I'm not gonna spoil whose voice it was, but I did tweet the audio at Getting Overcast on Twitter so you can listen for yourself. And if you do listen, it's very obvious when you hear it. So remember that Frazier Axiom match I mentioned a little bit ago? So two minutes into that match, the women all continued brawling out from the back to the ring. They forced a no contest as the guys looked at each other just like shrugging, like, okay, I guess we're not having a match anymore. Then suddenly, Nikita Lyons returned and roundhouse kicked Blair's head off her body. This was fun. It was way better than the segment that preceded it. But Nikita's return in the moment felt completely unnecessary because she's not in the match. Unless the idea is that by getting retribution against Davenport, she injured her and took her out of the match and is going to replace her. That would make sense, but we have not heard that yet. Anyway, that was all of the build for this. So going back to the match, Tiffany Stratton, Kalani Jordan, Lash Legend, Blair Davenport, and now Fallon Henley coming in. So, you know, doing process of elimination, which is what we always do in these types of situations, does not make sense for Kalani Jordan to win. Lash Legend still too green. Metaphor is not built for a single female star, as of right now, I would say. And Fallon Henley is a babyface, whereas we have a babyface champion in Lyra Valkyria. So as much as I'd love Henley to win, I don't think she's going to. That leaves us with Tiffany Stratton and Blair Davenport as kind of the two finalists. And you could make a great case for either of them. However, now that we're seeing Nikita is back in the picture, going after Blair for taking her out in kayfabe, even though she tore her ACL separately, you have to assume that she might factor into this a little bit. And that, by process of elimination, leaves us with Stratton as the winner of the Women's Iron Survivor Challenge. I do think that makes a lot of sense. And if she ultimately does challenge for the title, that match, doing it at a Stand and Deliver WrestleMania weekend, that's probably your two top women on the brand. And that would make all the sense in the world as well. Now, just in case you thought we were done with this, we're not. Because Perez and James wound up in the training room after this match with Izzy Dame, who I believe was a former volleyball player who is now an NIL trainee. She was supporting Kiana, which she recognized and appreciated. The women had to be separated by security as they challenged each other to a match. And then Ava stepped in and said she would make it official. Remember, we saw her kind of stepping into Shawn Michaels' office a few weeks ago. So I guess she's taking over some kind of authority figure role. It's confusing what's happening with her. But later, she walked out of his office and announced the match was on. It was going to happen at deadline and it would be a steel cage match. So that's pretty exciting, and it makes sense that they're doing it, though I will say it's a little bit repetitive. You're doing the Iron Survivor matches that have the penalty box, and you're doing a steel cage match. I know it's not the same, but it's decently similar from like an aesthetic standpoint of someone being locked in a structure. So anyway, this got added to the card. Roxy, Kiana, and I'm glad because this feud is deserving both of the featured spot and the stipulation. They've been putting in good work for weeks, the pick here should not be difficult. It's certainly possible that Izzy gets involved and helps Kiana, but on a premium live event inside a steel cage, you want the fans to see their favorite win, and Roxy should absolutely take this, especially because, again, it's a steel cage, and you want her to thrive in a moment like that. You don't want to just give that away to Kiana, who doesn't really need it. Roxy does. She needs to get built up again, and she's not champion. Uh, Frazier against Axiom was also announced coming out of this for the kickoff show. And quickly for a pick there, Frazier over Axiom. Gets the win back and uh, starts moving forward in a more positive direction. Let's move to the Men's Iron Survivor Challenge. Braun Breaker, Trick Williams, Dijak, Josh Briggs, 
and one contender still to be decided. NXT Anonymous showed Carmelo Hayes and Trick Williams from October 17th coming up with a plan to take down Dijak and Baron Corbin, despite being smaller than both of them. They agreed to divide and conquer, dapping each other up in a boardroom. Once Trick left, Melo hit like two buttons on his phone and then walked out of the room. Later backstage at NXT, Trick yelled at Melo, who said it wasn't what it looked like and he needed to lock in for his last chance qualifier. Williams demanded answers, but Hayes just went out and did the match. They didn't blatantly explain why Trick was upset, but if you think back to last week, and, and this was something that you needed to remember in the moment, and I actually did not right away. The anonymous video showed Lexus King receiving a text message and the time codes kind of match up. So the idea is that Hayes texted King and told him to attack Williams since he just left the room. Lexus then posted a social media promo suggesting he's friends with Mello and they're on the same page. We'll come back to this in a moment. We had Mello, Tyler Bate, Joe Coffey, and Eddie Thorpe in the last chance qualifier. Thorpe came out with wrapped ribs, still selling the injury. He went on a huge run early, but took a spinebuster into the steel steps, kayfabe knocking him out of the match. Mello countered Bates' rebound lariat with a code breaker. Coffee countered a springboard for Mello with Glasgow sendoff. Bate then caught both of them flying with European uppercuts, hitting Coffee with the rebound lariat and Tyler Driver 97 to advance to deadline as Mello was on the canvas and could have broken it up, but he just couldn't muster the energy. Bates started cutting a promo after the bell, so Dijak came out to answer him but he kicked Thorpe in the head on his way in. Breaker said that he better be the last one out or he'll just take them all down one by one, beat the shit out of them and keep them in the penalty box. Next was Briggs talking about being underestimated and shocking the world. Trick then came out talking his talk, but when Dijak brought up Mello, he just took a straight right to him and a brawl erupted. This similarly continued into the ring, interrupting the following segment, just like what happened with the women earlier. It ended with Breaker spearing Briggs and Williams through a table simultaneously and kind of bait standing tall at the end of it. So given Mello wasn't going to win this match, just like with the prior match, Bate was by far the next best option, and they badly needed a smaller guy in this because everyone else is huge. I remain happy for Briggs getting this opportunity. I just feel like someone like Axiom or Frazier in this spot would have made for a much more exciting match. Repeating the concept for the women's go-home is a bit paint-by-numbers. It would have been nice for them to do it differently because... With the men, we did get more action at the end instead of just brawling, but the way they interrupted the match, just like the other one, it, just, it was way too similar. So let's go ahead and move to predicting the match. Again, Braun Breaker, Trick Williams, Dijak, Josh Briggs, and now coming out of this match, Tyler Bate. Now you'll remember, of course, Ilya Dragunov is champion, and while he is a baby face, he is able to get into feuds easily with faces and heels and make both makes sense. Uh, he's not a tweener per se. It's just the way the character is, how driven he is. He can work with basically anyone. So same deal, process of elimination here. I just don't see Bate winning this. I know that I should have more reason behind that, but I really don't. So I'm going to eliminate Bate. Briggs joining. It's nice that he's getting the opportunity. He's a tag team wrestler right now, and he's not showing enough or sh being showcased enough as a singles performer that it would make sense to give him such a big win in the Iron Survivor Challenge, we eliminate him as well. Trick Williams, Dijak, and I believe Braun Breaker have all already fought Ilya Dragunov. So there isn't much reason for one of them to win, meaning that they would be a first-time challenger. Now that said, Dijak and Dragunov have fought 
relatively recently, and Dragunov and Williams have fought twice recently. The last time Dragunov fought Breaker was a number one contendership in July, which I believe he then used to actually win the title from Carmelo Hayes. So the idea of them going back to that is possible. I don't see Trick coming out of it just because of the Mellow storyline. It doesn't seem like they're trying to put him into the title picture again. And, and let me repeat, Ilya already beat him twice. So let's remove Trick. That brings us down to Dijak and Braun. The Dijak match was so freaking good. You could totally see them doing it again. But now that I think about it, Dragunov fought him twice as well. First was like a disqualification. And then they did the last man standing, but he didn't pin him. So that's the difference between Breaker and Dijak. Dragunov pinned Breaker. He did not pin Dijak. So I'm going to go with Dijak then. Winning this match by process of elimination. Uh, two heels, I guess. Stratton and Dijak coming out of this. But when you have two babyface champions, that's pretty much what you need to do. There is more though. Mello backstage spoke to Ava saying, it seems like she can get things done. And he really wants a match to get made. She agreed to help. And then Trick came up trying to get answers from Mello again because nothing is making sense to him. Hayes denied that he texted King and informed Williams that he's getting a match with him at deadline, meaning Mello and Lexus. Trick shot back that it was a good idea and he couldn't wait to see Mello open the show with him closing it. Obviously that irked Mello. This continued to hit overall, but there has now been like two months for these guys to talk about it as friends. Yet for some reason, they haven't done that. So the suspension of disbelief for me, it's been a bit much, but it does seem like it's finally coming to a head. It could be one of those storylines where even though Mello did not attack Trick, the way Williams has been acting recently leads to a turn, or Williams can get in his own head about it and turn on Mello, who's actually innocent the entire time. It seems like they're going in one of those two directions. But we did get Mello against King confirmed for the show. It's going to be real interesting to see what they do here because Lexus really should not lose his first PLE match, but Mello also should not be falling to him given how many matches he's lost recently. So I'm going to go with Hayes in this spot, barring something totally unexpected. And that brings us to the NXT Championship, Ilya Dragunov against Baron Corbin. Corbin in the parking lot was uber confident about fighting Dragunov, knowing he would take the title off of him. They met in the ring in the main event of NXT with Ilya going off about his sacrifices, which Baron retorted were just excuses. Corbin said Dragunov could have figured out a way to bring his family over if he wanted, but instead he left them out in the cold. Ilya got heated trying to contain himself just to ensure that he didn't murder Corbin in the moment so they could actually have their match at deadline. He also called them materialistic son of a bitch, but Corbin countered that his goal was vindication for himself because he's fought through an up and down career for eight years and he wants that big title, the NXT Championship. Then Corbin cleared the ring and even turned his back, goading Dragunov into an attack. He promised to take Ilya's only reason to be in the United States and called him a coward. Dragunov grabbed him in like a half hug, half suplex stance and growled that the only thing that can destroy the dragon is the dragon himself. Corbin stood in like stunned silence and that ended it. This was strong. Dragunov comes off so effortlessly dangerous and ruthless. So to have Corbin bring the fire out of him and then bring the calm out of him, that was just so great. This is one of the better such segments that they've actually done. And it concluded what I would consider the best NXT go-home show in quite some time, just in terms of actually setting up the premium live event. Don't forget, there was a while 
where NXT title match participants would only do a video package and they wouldn't even appear on a show like this. I railed against that for a long time. This was so much better comparatively and it added a good amount of intensity to what was already a really strong title match on the show. Now, in terms of a pick, I mean, you could definitely see Corbin beating Dragunov. He's a main roster superstar, eight years experience, and certainly would not be embarrassing by any means for Dragunov to lose. And if you're going to call up Dragunov where, look, his talent level is made for the main roster and he really should be there, then having Corbin win makes all the sense in the world. I just don't think he's getting called up. And if he's not getting called up, there's no reason for him to lose the title. So I have Ilya Dragunov retaining the NXT championship at deadline. So that about wraps up the ultimate preview. Those were all seven matches again, three that were booked slash changed on the go home NXT. We went through all of them. So it is time for our pre-show expectation grade. And I do need to say, I'm a fan of this card. Like top to bottom, it brings a lot for any type of fan. You have the two Iron Survivor matches, which if you remember last year, completely over-delivered. The main championship match, uh, Ilya Dragunov against Baron Corbin, that has a chance to be an absolute banger. I mean, you know what Dragunov does consistently. So yeah. That's gonna be a banger. And then Dominic Mysterio against Dragon Lee has high potential. Roxanne Perez and Keanu James inside a steel cage has high potential. Maybe the weakest match on the card is Carmelo Hayes against Lexus King. But the reason why I can't go into the A range for an expectation grade is because of the Iron Survivor matches, particularly the women's match. There's just so, there are so many participants in those that are not, quote unquote, the best that NXT could do. They're just not as strong from a match participant standpoint as they were a year ago. So my expectations are reduced for both of them. But I do think by the time deadline ends, we're gonna walk out saying that was a damn good show and well worth our time watching it. So my expectation grade coming in, it's gonna be a B plus. That gives them plenty of space to exceed my expectations, no question about it, but also obviously plenty of space to fall below them as well. I just think B plus is appropriate because the build's been strong, the card is strong, but I'm not totally sure how they're going to deliver on it. And that of course is key to an entertaining premium live event. So folks, that wraps up this edition of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. Let me reiterate right now, we will be back on Saturday as soon as NXT Deadline goes off the air with your NXT Deadline Instant Analysis Podcast. We will discuss your pre and post-show grades, my post-show grade, of course, and we will break down every single match on Deadline with results, analysis, and grades. And my hope right now is that Vintage Chris Vanini will be watching and joining us for the show. I just do not have full confirmation of that yet. In terms of what's still to come, next week we will be back on Tuesday with a WWE episode. And of course, next Thursday, we'll be back with your next AEW and NXT show. On the way out, let me hit you with those reminders first that the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast is all about So don't forget to head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Leave those five-star ratings on Apple. Take a little extra time. Leave a five-star written review. If you do, we will read it live right here on the show. Remember to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode drops, news, analysis, highlights, all of that good stuff. You can also DM and tweet us questions and comments that we will read on the show. And you're going to want to be following us at Getting Overcast so you can vote in those pre and post-show polls. But not only that... 
Coming up starting next week, we will have nominations and announcements regarding the 2023 Getting Over Awards, aka the Medes. So you're going to be wanting to follow us there so you can vote, so you can nominate everything on Twitter at Getting Overcast. Let me also remind you on the way out that on the show and in my life, I happen to love the number five. And I hope you do as well, because for $5 a month or 50 for the entire year, you can become an official Getting Overhead. Just visit buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. Sign up. You get bonus audio, the fastest five minutes in professional wrestling, instant reaction to the major shows, and exclusive news posts every Friday. Again, buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. Thank you all for listening to this edition of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. I hope you enjoyed that NXT Deadline Ultimate Preview. We will be back on Saturday and then again Tuesday and next Thursday. But at this point, it is time for the Silver King to sign off and leave you with just three final words. Bye for now.